When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss Episode 5, The Sons and Daughters of America, which covers Charlie Pride's efforts to integrate country music, the rise of Roger Miller, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard's Bakersfield Sound, Loretta Lynn, and the new wave of female singers she led. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by James Porter as we continue our discussion of Ken Burns' country music documentary. Today, we're going to be talking about episode five, which covers 1964 to 1968 and is titled Sons and Daughters of America. James, welcome back. How you doing, guy? Doing well, doing well. So this was a big one, but it's interesting to me that they you know, cover entire decades in some episodes, but this next two episodes, this one covers four years, and the next one I want to say covers another four years. So there's something about the 60s and early 70s that they find incredibly significant. Is it just that Ken Burns is a baby boomer, and this is the biggest thing, the the, the magical years of the boomer lives? Well, honestly, nobody gets out of the 60s unhurt. They're going to be affected some kind of way. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Anytime I see an autobiography of anybody you know, sometimes just to have, just for the hell of it, I'll start in 1968 because that's when changes start coming down, and I want to see how they react to it. And uh, this is going to be a hell of a thing we're going to talk about tonight because country reacted and created a lot of changes in a lot of ways. So you know, yep. some of those ways hit the top charts. You know, so yeah. Yeah, indeed. And and they and they give the context at the beginning of the show. And the context is the civil rights movement and all the immense changes that have been happening all through the 50s. And it comes to a head in 64 with the signage of the Civil Rights Act in, in 64, 65, um, the sit-ins, the March on Washington in 63. So big changes afoot. And they state the that country is not only you know reflecting the positive changes but also reflecting the stubborn resistance to change and but what they don't get into is all the underground racist records that were coming out of Louisiana in this period so Ooh, yeah. i thought yeah i thought that was that was an interesting omission and and they aren't going to talk about some of the stars that campaigned with George Wallace in 68 either. So they're, they're kind of giving us um, 
a, a more positive spin, which is fine. I don't have an issue with that. I just wanted to point out that there's a little more to the story here. Oh, yes. And of course, as you know, it's like one of the biggest country, racist country labels of the 60s was Rebel Records. And it was owned by a guy named Jay Miller, who produced a lot of uh, blues records for Excello. Yeah, which is, I've always thought that was a weird dichotomy. I presume Miller was just looking to make a buck and pretty cynical about it. I think it. so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if the radio plays those, but from what I understand, those like really common on a lot of uh, on a lot of stars and bars, jukeboxes in the, in the deep south. So, yeah. yeah, it, it was, um, one of my older brothers has told me about that, that, that he used to check jukeboxes for those songs and knew that if those songs were on the jukebox, he needed to make his visit short. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, even for white boys like the Wilcoxes, it was, you know, you got to pick your spots and, and that was not someplace he felt at home. So, yeah. So well, this I'll is, admit, I mean, once, once I was, once I was drifting for records in Birmingham, Alabama, and I wound up bringing home one of those racist country records by mistake. Did you give it a spin? Uh, yes, I did, because there was no way, I mean, I can't, I don't remember offhand what the title and the label was, it was on Rebel, but it was like, it looked so offbeat, I wonder what the hell it was, you know, and then I took it home, and it turns out, I was like, it sounded like, oh, I don't know, like Archie Campbell or something, not to say, no, Archie Campbell was involved with them, I'm saying, it sounded like Archie Campbell or Lonzo and Oscar doing like a racist comedy routine, you know, about busing or something, so some, some, yeah. some weird, something like that, so yeah, you know, but there yeah. it was, you know, part of Alabama history, and you know, yeah. In Chicago. And, and yeah, indeed. It's uh <laughs> yeah, some ugly stuff um in this period and in these places. But the story they tell tonight is more um they talk about Johnny Cash. They they frame the episode with Johnny Cash. They talk about his folk period early on and his continuing struggles with pills and his dissolution of his first marriage and then they end the episode with his cleaning up with june carter and her family helping him save himself and then the triumphant live concert album recorded at Folsom prison and that's kind of prison and that's kind of the frame that they use but then they they talk about loretta lynn give her a big feature uh -huh. uh paint her as a feminist, which is totally fair. I mean, they point out that she didn't consider herself a feminist, but that she was writing songs and singing songs that were speaking for women in a very clear right. and powerful way. Um, they talk about the Bakersfield scene, which they basically boil down to Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, which I think is totally fair. Uh, they talk about Charlie Pride, who actually integrates country music um, and, and becomes the first black country superstar, which was very much sort of the Jackie Robinson of country music. And it was the kind of thing every business essentially had to do around this period just to show they're socially acceptable and with the times. So Charlie Pride is this immensely important figure, and they, and they give him his due. Uh, and then they talk about the wave of female artists who come along, not necessarily in the wake of Loretta Lynn, but – but following Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn's success and, and you know, Dolly Parton, Jeannie C. Riley, Bobby Gentry, Jeannie Seeley, Connie Smith, um, go through that. And then the one that and they these, give – These singers, I don't, they weren't exactly – I don't know if they were influenced by Loretta Lynn, but they were a lot more frank and forthright than the country singers that came before. Yeah, absolutely. The the Kitty Wells era of shrinking violence is over. And you know, Kitty was famous um, for – wild side of life but 
or it was a guy who made Honky Tonk Angels. But other than that, right. she pretty much hewed to the straight and narrow of, uh, you know, traditional values, et cetera. Um, and then, but the one, the one that they give a whole feature to that they don't talk about in the prelude is Roger Miller, who's one of these Nashville songwriting guys who's had a few hits as a songwriter, but is giving up on his performing career after being dropped by four labels in six years, which that had to stink, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as we've discussed, you know? Yeah. So somebody and, gave uh, a, a last chance. Yeah, one last chance. He was going to head out to Hollywood and try to make it as a, a comedic actor. And his manager just kind of as a favor offers him $100 for every song he cuts. He cuts two dozen songs. They're all his funny type of songs, which he hadn't pushed much. He'd been trying to make it as a straight, serious country singer. He yeah. cuts it. They put it together in an album called Roger and Out. And dang me becomes a hit and he's already in Hollywood trying to make it in his new life when he hears it on the radio. It was so big that they retitled it. Dang me, you know, yep. for, uh, instead of Roger, Roger now. Yeah. He was pretty much out of nowhere. I mean, it's like, I mean, country crossovers weren't unique, you know, and funny country singers weren't unique, but for Roger Miller to happen when, and as he did, you know, with folk rock on one side, British invasion on the other, you know, and of course the soul revolution and all of a sudden out of nowhere, like, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called The TNT Show. Yeah. All right. Definitely. As we know, it's like, it's our Ike and Tina Turner or Ray Charles, The Love and Spoonful, Patula Clark, and in the middle of all this, Roger Miller. That's how big he was. He was like the token country, uh, the token country representative, and he did a pretty good job, you know? Yeah, that's Phil Spector's um, answer to the Tammy show that he put together. And I think Bo right. Diddley's in there, too. It's it's definitely a classic. And, yeah. yeah, I remember when I was a teen and saw that for the first time um, as a rock music nerd, you know, studying the classics. And I'd get my hands on this videotape of the, of the TNT show. And there's Roger Miller. And at that <laughs> point, I, I only knew him from King of the Road. And I'd heard of You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd and – do I could do, but I really hadn't heard them. And right. it was, that was my first introduction, you know, to the sort of comedic stylings of Roger Miller. And King of the Road was such a huge song. I mean, that was one I heard on country radio growing up. It's on the Smithsonian. Well, funny, I, heard on old, I heard on oldie stations, like I was telling a friend of mine, that song makes homelessness seem like fun. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was a wild yeah. I mean, as hearing it as a nine-year-old, I didn't catch on. I didn't know exactly what was going on. The manager, he's king of the road. He knows a lot of people. He knows a lot of places. But then it hit me until I was a grown-ass man that, wait a minute, this guy has no place to lay his head. He just kind of knows where to go when nobody's looking, you know? Yeah, or or if he can get day work sweeping, you know, a four by twelve flea bit room, uh, or buys a four bit yeah. room. And and the, the thing about King of the Road, I want to throw this at you and see what your take is. I'm a man of means by no means, king of the road. And I was always, is that uh, by no means I'm king of the road or I'm a man of means by no means slash and I'm the king of the road? Which, how do you, how did you interpret flat. that? I heard okay. flat. Uh, that, that, that's the part that I got. Yeah. 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 That's, I think that's clearly the right way to hear it. But as a kid, I was always just puzzling over that and, and mulling that. And that song, I mean, just a massive, massive song. And it wasn't until I went back and I made some CD mixes for myself of songs from different years of this period and threw 
Miller's earlier songs like Dang Me and Do What I Could Do into that mix, that I could appreciate that other stuff. Because for whatever reason, I always thought he was uh, trying to follow up King of the Road with the other stuff, and I didn't realize the the narrative. But now that I can see it in order, um, it totally totally makes sense. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Roger Miller. And let's hear uh, Do What I Could Do. Well, I hear tell you're doing well, good things have come to you. I wish I had your happiness, you had it. I can do, 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 I can do. They tell me you're running free, your days are never blue. Well, I wish I had your good luck charm, and you had to do, I can 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 do. And that was Roger Miller, uh, one of the deans of the Nashville songwriting scene, doing Do Whack a Do, a song that came out after he left Nashville and given up on that whole thing. And yeah, it's easy to see Miller as a one-off or a, a one-hit wonder and not really get how big he was. But like, all you have to do is watch the Disney Jungle Book and you hear his songs in there. And that's a gig that the, the Beatles were actually up for and and – Brian Epstein. Uh, yeah, the Jungle Book. Walt Disney approached the Beatles about doing the music. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, uh, and Epstein, yeah, Epstein was uh, apparently all for it, and the, and the Beatles turned it down, and it was not a good fit for the Beatles <laughs> during the revolving period. But so, so somebody, a, somebody like that would have set him back a few years doing something like that. Maybe for and the thing about Roger Miller to backtrack to something you just said, he wasn't quite. A, I mean, he's one of those guys where it's like you know he had a thousand hits, but people only remember one or two. You know, but he was pretty much a phenomenon, you know, for most of the 60s, yeah. you know, particularly in that period between 64 and 66, you know. So, I mean, he was like, there's a reason why, you know, the Roger Miller Golden Hits LP, that's like one of the most common. You always see like beat up copies of that 99 cent bands in every used record store in the world. Why? People bought it. Yeah. So that, that, that LP is like a testament to how big he was back then, you know. Yeah, he was big and he had a big run. And I also think that where he fits in time is very apt because he's right in there with Bob Newhart and the Smothers Brothers and the folk revival, kind of the Kingston Trio, that collegiate side of the yeah. folk revival, not so much the Bob Dylan side, which we're going to talk about in a second here. But there there was a brief window when these clean cut but subversive figures like Roger Miller or, or Bob Newhart could get out into the public consciousness in a big way, and he absolutely did it. And then – Knowing what we know now about the Nashville songwriter scene going on and, and, and the scene at Tootie's and, and everything, he's been hanging out with Willie Nelson and Shel Silverstein and Harlan Howard and all those cats for a while. Um, uh, you know, and if you think dude, about it, he kind, of, he kind of predicts Tom T. Hall, too. Yeah. I mean, he, kind yeah. Of like, he predates and predicts Tom T. He made it possible for Tom T. Hall to break out the way he did because I see some similarities there, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so so that's the Roger Miller section, which, you know, they gave him a full five, six minutes on the show. But they don't talk about him in the little intro, but he's definitely one of the main figures. And I guess let's talk about Bakersfield now. Um, they they talk a little bit about Nashville and they talk about the the A team. And this is the only time when they really talk about the session players, mostly men, so session men who dominate this era mainly the productions of owen bradley and chet atkins but i mean they were working for everybody and like they say in the show these guys are recording every day 
dozens of songs in a week and you know a lot of masterpieces but lots of mediocre material and some real disasters as they mentioned and some of these guys you know um owen bradley's brother uh was the most recorded guitarist in history um they they talked to charlie mccoy uh who's a multi-instrumentalist uh primarily a harmonica player and and you know it wasn't just country musicians like Bob Dylan famously came to Nashville and cuts blonde on blonde there. And, you know, pig Hargis was playing piano for him and he wouldn't call him pig. He was too intimidated to call the blind guy by his nickname. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Dylan comes into this episode again, I, I tease that we we're going to talk about Bakersfield, but since I'm talking about Dylan, the first section on Johnny cash out of the two of them, they talk about his version of, Ballad of Ira Hayes and his Bitter Tears concept album and how Cash was sort of self-consciously aligning himself with this new folk movement that's coming out of New York and that reaches its apotheosis with Bob Dylan. And they have some great footage of Dylan and Cash sitting at the piano and singing and and the Mutual Admiration Society is in full effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's like, I mean, because most at the time, you know, most country commentary were based along the line the lines of America Love It or Leave It, you know, these Hello Vietnam ballads of the, of the Green Beret type songs, you know. But even though Johnny Cash never really took a side, you can kind of tell something like Ballad of Ira Hayes could easily get through to like, you know, the people who dug Bob Dylan and Joan Baez because he sounded angry about the whole deal. And it must have come and, and it, it, it must have really like you know come through the come through the wax you know of how angry he was because if you remember a lot of stations wouldn't play it and infuriated johnny cash so where he just took out this open letter in all the trades like billboard cash box and asked the country djs flat out where are your guts you know yeah and and, and i doubt that helped him get much play but it drew more attention to the record. And that's one I remember yeah. hearing um, growing up in the 80s. It was, it was, I mean, for me, it was a real important historical lesson, just hearing the story of Ira Hayes and, and you know, his fate. And wow, you know, the guy's one of the four or five people raising the flag on Iwo Jima and, and dying in a gutter just a few years later. And, and it was heavy, especially, you know, spending my summers in New Mexico and one year our roommate was a, a Hopi Indian and and I remember hearing that song and, and talking with Ron Masawisawa, my brother's roommate, about that. And and you know, it wasn't any surprise to Ron. <laughs> <tell you that. laughs> he kind of knew the deal. But but um yeah. let's go ahead and, and let's hear Buck Owens waiting in your welfare line. Well, I ain't got nothing but the shirt on my back and an old two button suit I walked out of my job about a week ago and now I'm sleeping in a telephone booth but I'm gonna be the richest guy around the day you say you're mine I got to hungry and that was Buck Owens and the Buckaroos doing waiting in your welfare line which it's not quite Ballad of the Green Berets, but it's definitely sort of on the right side of the political spectrum, I'd say. And talking about that open letter to Billboard, Buck did an open letter around this time where he vowed to strictly do country songs and always be a country artist. And that was partly important because he 
is the flag bearer for the Bakersfield sound, which is the big challenger to the Nashville sound in this period. And it's all about loud telecaster guitars, what he called the, the freight train sound, heavy duty rhythm section, drums, electric bass, uh, Don Rich on lead guitar, the great Don Rich on lead guitar. And I really felt like they did buck justice here. They've got Dwight Yoakam, who's you know probably his biggest apostle, uh, singing his yeah. praises. And and the point that Dwight makes about Buck's music being effervescent and light on the surface, but underneath there's that hard work camp stare and that, and that Buck Owens is a serious, aggressive dude. Um, and that, you know, Dwight's theory is basically that the pain Buck Owens went through as a child is, was so intense that he had to keep his music light and sort of keep things superficially pleasant because if he went to the dark side, it was going to get heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny, too. I think there's this one something that um, uh, I forget. It, it, was like, it was like something that one of the guys who wrote that uh, book, Heartaches by the Number, um, that came out about the, the, the top 100 or whatever country records, he once said something to the fact that the thing about Buck Owens is he sang everything with a smile. And you can kind of hear it on the record. Matter of fact, for that reason, the re- the record he did in '69, you know, big in Vegas. That might be my favorite Buck Owens song ever. And the trip that part about it is, you know, he ain't smiling there. I mean, that song he really sounds defeated, you know. But he but he sells it just the same, you know. Yeah. But everything, yeah. everything before that is like totally like you know slap happy and you know. But he's got like the Telecaster guitar is kind of like you know blaring away, you know, and 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 heavier drums than you hear on most Nashville records. And what I think is interesting, you know, even though Buck Owens and the Buck Roos they did have rock and roll tendencies. They really only made the, top, the pop top forty once, and that was with um, what's that song? Um, the instrumental. Uh, I got a tiger by the tail. Oh, no, tiger by the tail. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was, like I was gonna think. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And of course, and this is something they bring up in the show. The Beatles cover act naturally. It's the last cover the Beatles do until the Let It Be album, um, and it's a high profile song. Even though it's a Ringo Starr song, it's the B side of Yesterday. So you know Buck Owens made yeah. a mint off that. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, but and and it's also I think. You know, you can't talk about this period without talking about the Beatles. They were just that big and that dominant. And so right. the the Buck Owens connection is a perfect way to get that in there. And it also, I think, shows that Buck was a little hipper than what was going on in Nashville. And even though he was wearing his Beatle wigs and, and making a joke about it, he dug their attitude. Mm-hmm. And he especially liked the whole, you know, that's what he said. I, I I admired the way they didn't take any guff off anybody, and they and they stood up for themselves and didn't let anybody push them around. And and you could just feel Buck's identifying with that because that cat did not let anybody push him around. And is one of the best businessmen, probably the best businessman in country music since Roy Acuff and maybe since Gene Autry. I mean, Buck ended up selling well, Buck, his radio stations. Yeah, I mean he. Sharp, you know. Yeah, uh, made a ton of money in publishing, owned radio stations that he sold for, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars, if I'm if I'm not um, mistaken. I talked to his Randy Poe, who edited his autobiography a while back, and yeah, Buck was just an incredible businessman. And of course, if you're going to talk about Buck and you talk about Bakersfield, you got to talk about Merle Haggard. And yes. Merle Haggard, I, you know, it used to just sort of baffle me. 
once I discovered Buck Owens, because I grew up seeing Buck on Hee Haw and just thinking of him as a clown. And it wasn't until my brother's brother-in-law, who was playing in bands in Dallas, and I just thought was a really cool guy, came and visited us one time and went to these record shops in Amarillo and came home with some Buck Owens records and mixed in there with, with you know the other hardcore honky-tonk he'd gotten. And I was just shocked. And I remember him just setting me straight, kid. Buck Owens is the shit, you know, like you gotta, <laughs> you know, if you don't know Buck Owens, you, you don't know country. And, and, yeah. you know, so yeah, rediscovering, you know, discovering that, but I was always fascinated. Why was it that Merle Haggard had this monumental reputation, the fugitive, you know, the, the hungry eyes, the poet of the depression and Buck Owens is That's just seen as. He put his dark side out there. Buck Owens did, you know, yep. I mean, they both knew what it's like, you know, to come up in, in tough times. You know, because Merle Haggard had been in jail, but he didn't try to hide that. You know, I mean, that was like part of the promo. Whereas with Buck Owens, he was trying to put all put, put all that behind him. Yeah, very true. And and Merle creates this persona. And Merle also didn't do Hee Haw. So you know, Buck <laughs> and Buck knew Hee Haw was dragging him down, but he just couldn't resist that sweet paycheck. And plus, after the tragic death of Don Rich in a motorcycle accident, Buck kind of lost his creative momentum. And you know, whereas Merle. Um, just rides it out. He's he's on this roll through the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s. And I did a whole episode with David Cantwell about Haggard and the Okie from Muskogee and, and the whole way his kind of entree into a broader American culture um, kind of got messed up by Okie from Muskogee, which oh, doesn't way, come that's up. The guy, that's the guy Go ahead. name I was trying to remember. It was this. That's the guy whose name I was trying to remember. It was David Cantwell who said that Buck Owens seemed to sing everything with a smile. Yeah. Yep. And he was right. Yeah. I'm glad you remembered. And let's hear from our sponsor and we'll wrap up on our Merle Haggard conversation. And so they frame Buck and, and Merle. They, they separate them in the show, but they use Dwight Yoakam to talk about both of them. And Dwight talks a lot about Merle's lyrics and and cite some really powerful lyrics that Merle wrote. And and I know my mom, who was a child of the Depression, who picked cotton in Oklahoma, child of the Dust Bowl, she loved Merle Haggard. And and Mama's Hungry Eyes, she would talk about and and she would also especially loved Mama Tried. And whenever that yeah. song came on, she definitely gave me the side eye and and let me know, you know, do not <laughs> do not even think about shaming his family. <laughs> so no, I mean, no, you a, know, a lot, it's really funny. A lot of Merle Haggard songs, you know, pretty much like you know, kind of like you know, in a weird way, kind of like you know, every mother's nightmare. It's like you know, you know, whatever Merle did in the song, you don't want to be like that, you know. And Mama tried. I mean, that's a total example. I mean, cause I, as an aside, I will say that when I first started getting the country proper. The first Merle Haggard record, the first the first country record I got was a Merle Haggard best of. I mean, I'd gotten like a lot of like semi country stuff that was kind of like you know a gateway, like you know Foster Lloyd, you know, or like yeah. you know Steve Earl, Commander Cody. But Merle Haggard's when I like really jumped in the water, bought this best of Merle Haggard for like a buck ninety nine, you know, and it was. I mean, I guess for somebody coming from rock to country, that was like probably the best way to get into it because I mean, there was like a dark side to him, you know. I mean. Oki from Muskogee, you know, notwithstanding, I mean, even though sometimes politically it might not have been on the right side, you know, still in all musically, you couldn't really argue with it because like the main thing, you know, I mean, I mean, I love Oki from Muskogee, not so much for the message, but if you ever heard the original studio version, it starts out with this really bluesy acoustic guitar. 
and it's really subtle, but it's there, and I can't get I can't get past that, and that's kind of what drives drives the engine for me is that tune. Yeah, and and plus he was clearly doing it tongue in cheek. Although later on he kind of took it more seriously, and and with fight inside of me, um, yeah, you know, went way in that direction. But originally it was a joke, and supposedly they were getting high on the bus when when uh, they cut. You know, I bet, and they saw the sign for Muskogee and said, "I bet they don't smoke marijuana, Muskogee." And boom, you know, <laughs> he's off. So yeah, you know, the, the, and I and I. Can't remember if they're going to get into that in the next episode or not, but we'll find out when we talk about that next time. But they just cover the the basic run of Merle Haggard. And what you're saying about Merle being your entree into hardcore country, they quote Emmy Lou Harris. They have her on screen, and they cut out where she says Graham Parsons. But I'm pretty sure she was saying Graham Parsons told me you just get any Merle Haggard record and drop that needle anywhere, and that's country because that's exactly what happened. Graham Parsons was an absolute acolyte of Merle Haggard, and was a kid coming from this rock and roll, thin folky background and Kingston Trio folky, not like Woody Guthrie folky, but Merle Haggard right, is what right. you know led Graham Parsons down the path that he chose of of trying to bring the, that hardcore country perspective and musicality into rock and roll and bring the rock and roll and i gotta say that that international submarine band i mean that really that really does sound like you know some la rock guys trying to pretend like they're from bakersfield you know yeah i mean i really think that i think i mean to me and i don't mean this in a bad way but that more than sweetheart the rodeo that one really does sound like you know little rock guys, you know, putting on grown folks' shoes, pretending they're Buck Owens and Merle Haggard for a date. Not bad, but he no. kind of tells a little bit more mature on Graham's later records, you know? Yeah, yeah, ab- they, absolutely. They picked, up, they picked up on the rock element of those Bakersfield records, and they kind of ran with that. I mean, it's not quite as mature as it should be, but you can kind of tell it's where they're going. Yeah, and, and, and it was a good direction to go. And so the episode, you know, posits Bakersfield as this alternative to Nashville, which it absolutely was. And, and they've talked about the Nashville sound uh, in previous episodes. And like I said, they talk about, you know, the session man and that whole scene. And the other sort of anthology or encyclopedic turn they take in this episode is to talk about touring in this era and, and you know, how it's pretty arduous. It's not really giant buses, it's station wagons, and it's country county fairs and picnics and it's multiple gigs a day and uh wow. it's and the joke is you know we don't get paid for playing we get paid for riding in the bus or the station wagon yeah, yeah. and and you know so they i think they do a good job of getting that aspect of the lifestyle and also the way that the country fans were dedicated to their fans and the way somebody like ernest tubb would stay out on sit on the edge of the stage signing autographs until the last van went home and they've got a great quote from roy clark who's saying you know, you don't you don't see a Frank Sinatra fan walking up and slapping him on the back and saying, "Hey, how you doing, Frank?" And uh, just an episode mm-hmm. on Frank Sinatra, you definitely would not do that. Goons <laughs> 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 might drag you right away. You know, Frank did not like to get touched, but these country performers they had to do it. And I'm going to segue into Charlie Pride right here because Charlie Pride understood that country ethos and the way that a country performer had to be humble to his audience and. That was an absolutely essential part of his success. He's very much the way Jackie Robinson's personality allowed him to break the color line in baseball because he was able to take abuse from you know racist jackasses and 
keep his mouth shut and, and keep his head focused on the bigger picture. And Charlie Pride was very much able to do that. And, you know, um, I'm going to quote Bill C. Malone from Country Music USA, which is kind of the source tome Burns used. But I was, I was reading this preparing for this episode, and it was something that I thought about a lot last year when Charlie Pride died of uh, passed away from COVID. And he said, um, Charlie Pride was one of the first country singers to receive standing ovations at the end of his concerts, a tribute to his talent, but also a means by which audiences read themselves of racial guilt and announced to the world, look, we're not prejudiced after all. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we can laugh about that. And it's and it's funny and obviously but there's something very real to that and almost holy. It was really hard on me when when Charlie Pride died. You know, it was the depths of the pandemic, hadn't been out of the house in weeks and had exactly. lots of friends, hadn't been able to see. And I just I just was so mad when Charlie Pride was taken from us. I mean, just so unnecessary. Well, I was kind of I was kind of mad because I mean, not to be a downer, but my mother's from Mississippi and she passed away from COVID like not long before Charlie Pride. So I was kind of like a so double tragedy. You know, yeah. and, uh, and 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 Charlie, you know, it's like I kind of, I mean, I'll admit, I mean, uh, Charlie, uh, I think they, him, because you record on RCA, you know, they laid on that Nashville sound just a little too thick, and for the longest time, he was like somebody I respected more and actually I actually liked to listen to, but then I got a hold of that live LP he did in 1969 at Panther Hall. You know, mm-hmm. and as God is my witness, that LP sounds a lot more Bakersfield than Nashville, believe me. It's like the string sections are gone. The Anita Kerr singers are gone. You know, uh, he's playing with him in this five or six piece band. It sounds like really raw compared to the records. You know, I think that LP, you know, kind of gave me like a brand new admiration for the music Charlie Pride did, you know. And he was humble, but he, then he kind of had to be because... A lot. I mean, he he told the story himself. It's like you know when he first got out on the circuit, you know, a lot of the country performers. I mean, most of them seem more curious than anything. But there was like one particular uh, country singer, you know, who was like really really big in the fifties. You know, sold as many records as Hank Williams, but he was really big in the fifties. He still kind of had hits in the sixties, but he was starting to slide. You know, Charlie Pride came in just as this guy was starting to fade, you know, and uh, he didn't take to the popularity of Charlie Pryor at all, you know, and when, and, you know, and there was still some old timers that he had to get past, you know, yep. and he, we managed to change some minds too, like Farron Young. Yeah. And that was a lieutenant, you know, who was not exactly the most progressive cat in the world, but he went to the mat for Charlie. Yeah. You know? And and they tell that story in the in the show. And let's hear a Charlie Pride number from Live at Panther Hall. This is Crystal Chandelier. The marble statuettes are standing stately in the hall. But will the timely crowd that has you laughing loud help you dry your tears? Is it when the new wires off of your crystal chandelier? I never did fit in too well with folks you knew. And that was Charlie Pride doing Crystal Chandelier from Live at Panther Hall. And yeah, that that is a, a sweet album. And the th- my thing with Charlie Pride was 
I didn't mind the country politan because his singing was so sweet. And um, is anybody going to San Antonio was on that uh, Smithsonian country classics. And I, I had a road trip to Boise, Idaho one year and, and my girlfriend and I just wore that uh, uh, set out and, and anybody going to San Antonio just became one of our songs. And yeah. I love and, that song. Also Kiss Names a Good Morning too. You can't go wrong with that either. Oh yeah. That was his big, his big yeah. uh, pop hit. And, and yeah. Right, and, the only pop hit. Yeah, and and I really do. I I just gotta say it again. I I don't think you can underestimate. He's almost like a secular saint in a way for country music fans because a lot of country music fans were kind of racist, definitely conservative, but were open-hearted people and wanted to accept a black performer. And Charlie Pride gave him that chance, and and. It meant a lot to people. It really meant the world to people. And that story they tell about him and Farron Young, where everybody knows Farron Young's a big loudmouth in town. He's a big star. He's he's very outspoken, very aggressive, very politically conservative, racist as the day is long. And yeah. they you know they tell him, Charlie, this is one of the people you're going to have to get get past. And Charlie just says, well, let's do it. Let's find him and let's meet him. Let's get it over with and sit down and they just start playing songs. And, you know, Farron Young can't believe it that he's sitting here singing and playing with a black man and having a, a good time. And he doesn't use that terminology. But it's, <laughs> to me, it's classic. It's it, it gets to the heart of the way the Scots-Irish think about race and friendship and alliances because it's all personal. And once Farron Young was friends with Charlie Pride, didn't they tell the story about, you know, Farron Young being at a convention and a DJ telling him, Hey, we're not playing that black guy, Charlie Pride's records on our station. And Farron Young says, well, you, you son of a bitch, you tell your station manager not to play my records if you're not going to play Charlie Pride and backed him. And, and that kind of stuff has a big impact. That's the kind of stuff that gets around the business. And so then they get to have the whole happy ending and tell the story of how they were, became lifelong friends and were inducted into the Hall of Fame together. And, you know, uh, that's what it's all about, music bringing people together. And Wenton Marsalis has a nice statement about that, you know. So, yeah. you know, what, what what it's all about. But let's um, – we're running low on time, so we need to cover these these ladies that, that I talked about. They they. Jeannie C. Riley, you brought you mentioned Tom T. Hall earlier. She has a massive hit with Harper Valley PTA, Tom T. Hall song, which right. establishes him. Uh, Jeannie Seely, Connie Smith, who Bill Anderson discovered and gave her the song Once a Day and has a massive hit. Um, Bobby Gentry, yep. who's Ode to you Billy know. Joe, is just a weird song and a massive, massive hit. And then she goes away. Yeah. Um, Partly because she didn't like the business, and I think she made so much money off that song, she didn't have to, you know. Um, any thoughts on that crop of, of ladies? Ed, and Dolly Parton, of course. We got to mention Dolly um, comes along oh, yeah. with with Porter Wagner, and they get into that whole this little lady, and they have a montage of of patronizing sexist remarks being made to introduce female performers on stage, and and uh -huh. you know talk about Dolly and the Porter relationship but then they wrap it up with Johnny Cash's redemption and the way that the the June Carter and Mother Maybell Carter help him kick his pills and then have that triumphant return at Folsom Prison just an epic story and the thing that was sticking in my head was when June Carter said I can't lose him the way we lost Hank and no one you know the stories I've read about Maybell Carter and the way she nursed Johnny Cash through all this 
and had tried to save Hank Williams. That's just heavy to me that this one little woman, not only is she in the original Carter family, she brings Chet Atkins to Nashville. She tries to save Hank Williams and she does save Johnny Cash. That's that's heavy. That is a lot of karma for one little person to carry. It is. It is. Yeah. And the funny part is, it's like as influential as she was in the country field, most people know her as, you know, one fourth Carter family, you know, or the latter day Carter, Carter family, or, you know, as Johnny Cash's wife, you don't really see people talking about June Carter on her own terms, but she was definitely a pivotal figure in, in that field. Also, about this new crop of female singers that I know that every none of the female mentioned none of the female singers you mentioned came from a mold. It seems like they all kind of had like something distinct about them. I mean, not necessarily a quirk, it was something to set them apart. You know, I mean, Jeannie C. Riley, if you think about it, image-wise, she was both she and Bobby Gentry were revolutionary because I mean they were both dressed like Nancy Sinatra mod clothing. You know, at a time when most female singers, female country singers, were. Uh, kind of conservative, you know, and as far as Bobby Gentry goes, I mean, she was just a mixture of a whole bunch of stuff to the point that she's calling only marginally country. She's like the Tony Joe, kind of like, you know, Tony Joe White a couple of years before he became famous, you know, it's like that kind because old Billy Joe, I mean, that's probably like one of the last songs that was like a big hit on the country pop and R&B charts simultaneously. Yeah, they mentioned kind of that. Had kind of yeah, yeah. You know, and she kind of had this little swamp rock thing. And of course, I don't know if it was her idea or her label's idea or her management's idea, but rather than have her go country, you know, or rather have her like play to like, you know, a hippie audience at the, at the Troubadour or something, they take her straight to Vegas, you know? And it was as much as I loved old Billy Joe for the longest time, I didn't take Bobby Gentry seriously because I thought she was like, you know, for the most part, you know, a shallow Vegas imitator, you know? I mean, not imitate, uh, entertain, that's what I'm trying to say. I yeah. see that LP she did with, with, with Glenn Campbell, and I kind of figured, nah, Old Blue Joe's probably a fluke. There's probably not much more to that. But then um, I got set straight somewhere down the road, and now I'm a big Bobby Tushy fan, you know? Yeah, and, and that album she did with Old Billy Joel is it's so good. It just makes you wonder where did she go? You know, she's one of the great lost uh, performers of that era. But let's go ahead yeah. and hear. Um, one more song. Let's hear Johnny Cash and June Carter from Live in Folsom Prison. This is their version of Jackson, sung right there in Folsom Prison. And that was Johnny Cash and June Carter doing Jackson live at Folsom Prison from his massively successful live at Folsom Prison album. And yeah, that that song really shows off the power of June Carter. And it's just a classic um, hit hit single that that captures the dynamic of their relationship in a way. It's not an autobiographical song. It's, you know, about a country couple who's. The, the the fires of love have gone out and they're and looking to heat things up by going to Jackson and kind of talking trash to each other back and forth. But there was a documentary about Johnny Cash and the Carter family that came out a couple of years ago, and it was really excellent. It had animated footage to try to 
create the presence of the original Carter family. It had the live footage of Anita Carter singing with Hank Williams, which just gave me chills. But it kind of scrimped on June Carter. It didn't talk about Ring of Fire, and it didn't talk about Jackson. So I was glad that she's getting her propers in this documentary series. They talked about Ring of Fire last episode, which she wrote for Johnny Cash. And they've really used the Carter family as the narrative thread that goes from the first episode so far all the way up. And this story of June and Johnny's romance and his, you know, the end of his first marriage. And we and we kind of skipped over, but they they talked about a really upsetting part of Johnny's life when he was arrested, I think in El Paso, and there was a photograph of his first wife. And him coming out of jail. And she was deeply humiliated. She was not a performer like June Carter. She was a private person. She didn't marry Johnny Cash when he was a celebrity. She married him. He was an airman. You know, she just married a regular soldier and was never comfortable with this. And she's a, uh, you know, dark complected Italian woman. And this photo, she looks very black. And the KKK comes out with pamphlets, you know, slandering Johnny and uh, had to just be really humiliating and, and gets into a whole mess of ugly stuff with with disputed ancestry. And in our screwed up American one drop, you know, of, of, of black blood and you're tainted and potentially, you know, could be sold into slavery back in the day. So, you know, that that just had to have been extremely painful for her and they really don't pull any punches as far as you know they celebrate the love of johnny and june but they don't they don't pretend that it wasn't low down and going behind his wife's back and and that vivian was very hurt you know there are real people that are really hurt by these experiences and and for somebody like her I don't know. My heart goes out for somebody who's sucked into fame when she's not a performer and she didn't want to be famous and and have to deal with this bullshit from, you know, the KKK just, you know, just must have been terrible. And so I hope I hope the rest of her life was was smoother and easier than her years with Johnny. Yeah. Oh, yes. Believe me. (laughs) And that was. (laughs) That that was the world that Charlie Pride stepped in when he became a country singer. So you can kind of see why he was. I mean, something we didn't discuss about Charlie is that when he had his first record, you know, RCA Victor intentionally didn't send out a photo of him. So he kind of got one over on the country public, you know. And yeah. then next thing you know, he's playing his first show, playing like these package shows, you know, and people like you know that black guy sitting on the corner. I think that's the guy that sings just between you and just between you and me, or whether that was the song just between you and me. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just between you and me, and then sure enough, he steps on stage, and everybody, and all, just like in a movie, it's like all conversation stops. And he's like, "Well, well, I know, I realize it's unusual to see a, a guy with a permanent tan come on here and sing, and sing a country song, but just think it was a big old freckle, everything will be all right." And then he gets out there and <laughs> kills it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and another thing I wanted to mention was, was they talk about Cowboy Jack Clement, who is his producer. And um, they say, you know, that Cowboy was a guy who was happy to be different and he did not care what people thought. And so that's why he was the right guy. Ralph Emery is the, is the guy telling the story and he was the perfect producer. And, and so, you know, it, it tells the backstory and the way the Nashville scene 
helped Charlie come along and, and Chet Atkins signed him to RCA, which, which, you know, took some commitment. And also thought it was interesting that Red Sovine and Red Foley were the guys that were up in Montana where Charlie's playing minor league ball and, and singing country at night. And they saw him in a club and were like, you need to go to Nashville. And, hmm. you know, I think a lot of it's sort of like Branch Rickey and the Dodgers. I think a lot of people in Nashville knew that they needed to have a black star and and they did. And they picked, you know, absolutely the right guy. Charlie's talent is just obvious. He's a great, great country singer. But the thing about Charlie Pride is he didn't really open that many doors. There are a couple black performers that come along in the 70s, but honestly, it's not until Darius Rucker in the 2000s and even then it's there still hasn't been a second Charlie Pride to any degree, and that's just typical. I think. I think. I think Darius Darius Rucker might be Darius Rucker might be the closest we've come. I mean, there have been others who've come along since then, you know. And I mean, it seems a lot more open, you know. I mean, it's, it's kind of too soon to tell because I mean, history has kind of shown it's like you know after Charlie McCri- Charlie Pride happens, okay, Linda 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 Martell shows up, she has her hit, and then she leaves. O.B. McClinton shows up. He has his hit, and he disappears. Stony, Stony uh, Edwards. He shows up. He's in the spotlight for a minute, then he's gone. And you know, Cleve Francis, like all these people, they had some hits to an extent, but they didn't stick and stay. You know, Darius Rucker has stuck and stayed. And as far as the others who are out there now, it's like it's kind of a little too soon to tell. You know what the long-range impact will be, and uh, I have to make a startling announcement here. I haven't keeping up too much with current country, but I never Same thought here. I'd see the day. <laughs> I never thought I'd see the day when I when one of the biggest country songs would be a tune called "Black Like Me." Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. It's, it's very touching to think that you know it, it could happen now. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh... Certainly so much has changed in society, and of course so much hasn't changed in society, but I feel like the country's overdue um, for some more black performers. And to some extent, I I feel like there's also an element of the way there have been fewer and fewer black players in baseball who aren't from the Dominican Republic, just a lack of interest or a lack of opportunity. I don't know how often black folks are getting to hear country music, uh, and definitely how much are they getting the opportunity to play. I mean, one of the things about hip-hop is – emerged because we killed music education in our public schools. And so this long tradition of jazz musicians and R&B musicians who learned to play instruments and learn musical theory in public schools, the hip hop generation didn't have that. And it's you know, a testament to human resourcefulness that they figured out ways to, to make music using records and, and rapping. But I wonder, you know, just, do the conditions exist to produce another Charlie Pride? I mean, you don't have the Grand Ole Opry on the radio in the same way that you did. It's not a, a clear channel Saturday night big deal the way it used to be. And and I just I don't know. I don't know if, if uh, I definitely don't think the country could produce another Charlie Pride. But could it produce a black version of Bro Country? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I have seen. You talk about black Charlie Pride. It's like. I've seen a lot of, I mean, give me a new Charlie Pride, rather. Yeah. Uh, every new Charlie Pride, I've seen a lot of new Linda Martells, too. There have been a lot of female black country singers popping up lately. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, so so we'll see. But that's, you know, outside the Ballywick getting, talking about 21st century country music. But it just, you know, talking oh, yeah. about Charlie Pride absolutely begs the question. And um, kind of short 
And I think we've covered all the topics, but I wanted to actually go back to something that we didn't cover from a couple episodes ago that's been bugging me. And that's little Jimmy Dickens. We totally, uh, he was in the episode uh, three, I think, the 50s episode, and we totally skipped over him. So I want to go back and talk about little Jimmy Dickens a little bit if you're up for it. Because, you know, some friends of mine went to Nashville in I think 99 and they were big Hank Williams, the third fans and, and they a whole bunch of them went and, and to the Opry. I don't know if, I guess Hank three was playing the Opry, but little Jimmy Dickens was there and they met little Jimmy Dickens and they, I want to say they met Minnie Pearl, although surely she wasn't still alive by then. But, um, but I know they had pictures with little Jimmy Dickens and this guy was just an absolute icon of the grand old Opry and what they got across uh, in the episode when they talked about him was that this little Jimmy Dickens was more than just a novelty singer. Like in the sixties, he pops up with, you know, may the bird of paradise fly up your nose. And that was kind of his last big hit. But in the fifties, he did a variety of numbers. I mean, he had taken old cold tater and wait and, and funny songs, but he was an all round singer. And, uh, as part of their version of the Felix and Bodeloup Bryant story, they show one of their most personal love songs, and Jimmy Dickens did the definitive version of that. So, you know, I just wanted to redress our omission of little Jimmy and give a shout out because as a short guy, I, especially, I, I, you know, Jimmy's got a place in my heart. I'm a little taller than him, but still, I know that <laughs> I know some of what he went through and, and, the guy was just a titan of country music, and and so I just had to um, get that out there. You got any thoughts on Little Jimmy? Uh, yes, I think. I mean, I'm familiar with his stuff, and to be honest with you, I think. I mean, I know it was the novelties that kind of got him over, but I think he's kind of wasted on those novelties because whenever I heard him play it straight, I mean, that was like honky tonk gold right there. You know, um, I forget the name of the song, but there's like um, there's like a couple. Uh, when Jimmy Dickens had a hit with uh, May the Bird of Paradise Fly Up Your Nose, he appeared on this syndicated rock and roll TV show called Hollywood Go-Go. You know, and uh, there are a couple of, there are two clips from uh, that show on, on, on YouTube as we speak, or at least the last time I checked anyway. And one was him doing May the Bird of Paradise Fly Up Your Nose. And of course, it's funny seeing these Go-Go girls trying awkwardly to do the jerk to something that sounds like that, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a culture class. Yes. But then the song... He, but then the other song he did on the same episode that I forget what it was, but I was talking to my friend Lawrence Peters about it, you know, and we both agreed. It's like, it was like a straight song. There was no, there was no, there was no, there was no yucks about it, you know, but he, he played it straight, you know, and of course got the same old country beat that the go-go girls can't dance to, but my God, I mean, he was just burning on that tune, you know, I, I wish I could remember the name right now. But it's, but it's definitely on YouTube, you know, and he was just like, you know, on fire. It's like, you know, well, I mean, I know he probably has new novelty songs because, you know, I guess that's what set him apart from the next guy, that in his side, you know. But yeah. when he decided just like, you know, just sing a flat out honky tonk like everybody else, he challenged all covers. I mean, he wasn't playing around. You know? Absolutely, absolutely, and he's kind of an heir to Roy Acuff as as the torchbearer of the tradition at the Grand Ole Opry for, I mean, into the late 1990s. So, yeah, Jimmy Dickens, absolutely monumental character, and and um, I guess and that's Brad Paisley used him on a, on a number of his albums too. Yeah. Into the 21st year, but he but he 
he had like these running comedy skits on his LPs where he, Lil Jimmy Diggins and Bill Anderson would do like these really crazy, you know, comedy routines, you know, and that was kind of, that kind of what kept Lil Jimmy Diggins in the public eye, really. Yeah. On, on the on the recording front, so yeah, so just a, a titan of country music, and just throwing that in there as we wrap up our discussion of a country music episode five, 1964 to 1968, the Sons and Daughters of America, and they get ominous and talk about all the things that are coming in the rest of 1968 because this episode just covers oh, the first Lord. couple months. Yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. it's about to be, you know, one of the darkest most turbulent years in American history coming up and, and, and well, we'll talk we'll, about that. Well, well, like, like they say, it's about to get real. You know? Yes. And that's like the polite, that's the polite version of that expression. I mean, it's about to get real, you know? Indeed. And we'll be back to talk about it. Uh, when we talk about country music six for Nate Wilcox and James Porter, we'll be back next time. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss Episode 6, Will the Circle Be Unbroken?, which covers the rise of Chris Christofferson and a new generation of Nashville songwriters, Mr. and Mrs. Country Music, George Jones and Tammy Wynette, Johnny Cash's emergence as a superstar, and the nitty-gritty dirt band's successful attempt at rapprochement between musical generations. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.